Welcome to tonight's Teferic Talk interview with New Jersey poet, translator, and professor, Robert Carnavalli. Robert's poems have appeared in the New Yorker, the Paris Review, the Literary Review, Alaska Quarterly, and many other journals and anthologies. He has a new book out now of translation of the Russian poet Alexander Kushner called Apollo in the Grass. This is available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. Uh, Robert served as the associate director of the Geraldine R. Dodge Poetry Festival for six years. During that time, he helped run four poetry festivals and created and ran various poetry activities for high school students and their teachers. Robert also served in various capacities for the long-running CBS show, Voices and Visions, about American poets. So it's truly my pleasure tonight to welcome Robert to our show, and I look forward to chatting with him. Robert, thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm really glad to be here. You have such a distinguished list on this series. <laughs> it's really an honor. Well, it's an honor for us to have you, and as I mentioned a, a minute ago, your poems are just so sensitive and intelligent and multi-layered, and uh, uh, I, I feel like you. We were also talking about how you are you are developing a website, but don't have one now, and I I feel like you are a poet who. Uh, put your focus on writing poetry and the teaching of poetry rather than the promoting of yourself as a poet, and I admire that. Um, so I thought we might start, if you would tell us a little bit about the book of translations that is out now from Farrar, Strauss, and Drew. Um, you, you worked on this with Carol Euland, who teaches with you at Drew University. Um, and maybe you could tell us about how you first heard of Alexander Kushner and uh, came to this project. Well, I knew about Kushner because I had studied with Joseph Brodsky, who um, was really responsible for Kushner first being translated into English back in uh, 1989 or 91, uh, back around there. So I had known of him, and... Uh, when I came to Drew, I knew that Carol had also known Joseph. So uh, after we finally got together, and uh, she asked me if I was interested in trying to um, provide the English verse for some translations, and I so I thought I thought I would do it, and uh, I didn't think it would last long because I thought without Russian, <clears throat> there wasn't much I could bring 
to the process. Well, um, some 15 years or so later, <laughs> there's a book that we've worked on over that time. Um, uh, Kushner is one of the most celebrated poets in Russia. Um, the He's better known in England than in America, um, where one thing we're kind of hoping this book will change that somewhat. Is there anything else you'd like me to say about him or the translation process or any of that? The translation process, yes. I'd be curious about how um, how that process is for you as opposed to writing your own poems. Mm-hmm. The, um, I'm afraid, I'm always, I mean, I'm afraid my voice almost certainly does show through, though I am always striving to um, catch Kushner's tone, his intonation, uh, his oh, style may be too ambitious a word, but to, the the aim is certainly to be true to him, not to make an imitation or a tribute or any of those other kinds of ways of um, representing a, a poet in a different language. Um it's a little hard to describe the process because what it, a lot of what it consists in is me asking stupid poet questions of Carol until um, I'm satisfied that the draft we have is a complete, whole, viable poem um, that somebody of Kushner's stature would have let out of his room and into a book. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is that I think I actually contribute to the translation of the Russian in a way by being very um, by being very dogged in understanding where metaphors go, how lines relate, why things are enjammed or aren't enjammed, just a million poetry questions. Uh, I think mm-hmm. end up, um, I was too bad, I mean, Carol isn't here to speak for herself, but um, I'll take the fact that she's stuck with me this long as evidence that she feels that we end up closer to the Russian at the end than mm-hmm. if she had done mm-hmm. it on her yeah. And and you said that um, Krishna himself was very pleased with the translations that you've done, correct? Yes, he he just recently, um, well, uh, not the translations exactly. The um, he just recently sent us an email which was a lot of praise for the introduction and how we represented his career and his style and his values. Um, he has very he has almost no English. He was relying on his stepson who is a very, very good translator between Russian and English. Um, but um, it was I'm sure it was a laborious process to get through the 10-page introduction. <laughs> uh, um, I'm sure they are discussing the poems, too, but it may be a long time before we get that feedback. Get a reaction to that, yes. Yeah. The yeah. introduction, I also, um, I thought that the introduction was beautifully written, and... Um, you, you you mentioned that the poems of Alexander Kushner represent a lifetime of living in truth and offering much schooling in how that is done. Mm-hmm. Um, and and 
from my contacts with you at readings and in publishing um, your work and Deferred, et cetera, I, I sense that's true about you as well, Robert. And I, I wondered if um, uh, you could you could talk to us a little bit about um, that, that statement. Representative, mm-hmm. the poems of Alexander Kushner represent a lifetime of living in truth and offer much schooling in how it is done. Um, yes. Another yes. quote from the introduction, they are beautifully made and their bearing is universal poems that deal with timeless and everyday matters. Yes. So yes. how does uh, this relate to your your sense of importance of poetry and the your other, own life? Yes. The other reason I stuck with this process for so long, besides coming to feel that I actually was contributing something to it, was that I came to admire Kushner more and more um, as a person and as a poet. He's kind of the opposite of Brodsky. He's very, very quiet and modest, not a large personality. Um, they they were friends, by the way, and admired each other's work. But um, they're they they are almost diametrical opposites in poetic style. Something they both had some fun with in their poems. But anyway, um, so I, I just really came to admire him, and what I came to admire is the same thing that I think his Russian audiences came to admire: is this quiet dignity and steely integrity. And the difficulty of um, living and writing that way in the Soviet Union was considerable. So um, the phrase living in truth um, is from Václav Havel, who is another hero of mine. So um, I guess what I would say is that any comparison any comparison between me and living in truth and Alexander Kushner is just just um, uh, pure gold. Though I don't believe I can live up to it, but it, it's certainly it's certainly an ideal I aspire to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you if you would please to read um, one of your own poems. Um, sure. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, I want to read one that's called Looking at Stars from the Top of a Mountain. Um, It's kind of appropriate to be reading this on the eve of the autumn equinox in a way, because it was originally, this version was, this was originally written for the winter solstice. I sent it around a few years ago to friends on the winter solstice. And um, it really, my... um, my fascination with dark places where you could see the stars from horizon to horizon began a long time ago. In fact, I mean, I, I could say I've been trying to write this poem for 40 years, <laughs> but uh, in, in a more um, in a more um, mundane sense of the identity of this poem, it's about four or five years old, and it's called "Looking at Stars from the Top of a Mountain." I have come to where I've always been. The other hills seem quite at rest. No telltale sign of thoughts like mine milling like fireflies about their crowns. The stars keep
keep on with their burning? How can we say they don't care where there's no caring to begin with? I am glad they don't stoop to our question. I knew before I came up here that I would not be able to stay where I've always been, always will be. Still, it seems strange I can't be where I am. Jimenez wrote, I am not I, and yet the world is still the world, and these stars, with few exceptions, are the same ones that always turned there. Up here, I am the strange one. I should be granite. I should be light. I should be space. I should be wind. And yet, however unlikely, I am as real and as present as they are. Yes, it's the dark shows us the stars. But even more, it is the stars show us the dark. I really would stay if the night would. But it would be rude of me to turn my back on a star that has no back to turn on the worlds it has set turning. Thank you so much. That's exquisite. I really love that poem. <laughs> um, you live in northwestern New Jersey, correct? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, did, did this poem have a seed in where you live? I know. I know it's no, more it, mountainous it, it, out the, the there seed. than it is where I am in Jersey. Yeah, I actually saw a pretty good Milky Way here the other night, one of the first cold nights. But um, no, the seeds comes from the revelation of moving from Patterson to northern Vermont to go to college and starting to experience real dark and see uh, to to see just how many stars <laughs> can be seen. I, I suppose if you go up to Labrador or somewhere, you see even more. But uh, to me, it, it was just a just a revelation. I, I just I never had such a sense of standing on this planet and being somebody standing on this planet. And as I say, I've spent decades trying to capture that experience. And whatever this poem is, I think it's the closest I've come <laughs> in all that time. And did- did, did you write down words of those years ago when you had gone to Vermont? Not, you, none of the words. Did you write an early draft? Or? Uh, not a, see, it's a, uh, to me it's the same poem, but in fact, the, uh, the, you, I'm not sure anybody would recognize anything but the subject matter. You know, from the earlier efforts, yeah. it, it's it, it's an obsession more than a matter of drafts. <laughs> Mm-hmm. With you, I know that you also spend many hours teaching at Drew and at King mm-hmm. University, and mm-hmm. you have a poetry workshop in your home as well. Um, yes, just started. Uh, yeah, it just started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you so you must enjoy teaching the writing of poetry as much as the writing of poetry, or near, or. <laughs> 
I I I love it. I um I've come to have a kind of profound belief in the workshop process. I I think that um to me workshop is much more than fixing poems or even learning about the art. Um to me it's a kind of um model of the great conversation that poetry itself is. It's a kind of a miniature miniaturization of the dialogue which in fact is the art itself you know we're doing it across a room and for a few weeks but um literature has been doing it for centuries across continents and and all sort all sorts of spiritual and cultural and political differences so um i've just really uh i know this is going to sound Pollyannish or naive, but I look forward to every workshop every time. I really do. <laughs> well, when you, you you stated that beautifully, the the process of workshopping, and and so it certainly makes sense that you would look forward to it, and that your students are fortunate to be there with you. Um, I'm probably making it sound like I'm, I'm probably making it sound like I'm a softy in workshop. Actually, I I I insist. I mean, in my workshops, we do a really close reading of every poem, and if people don't want to hear what's really what um, what's really been heard, what's really been experienced in their poem by the listeners, they've picked the wrong workshop. <laughs> So it's mm-hmm. I do it is a practical workshop, but to me mm-hmm. the um, the impractical part, or the, the 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 growth in perception, the growth in the ability to speak and listen, is more important than the poetic lessons or the improved poems. Yes, um, to to speak and to listen to the muse. I I read something that you said that that. When the muse gets hold of you, that you either she or you won't let go when a poem is ready to come. And um, I yeah, wonder if you like would something I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the um, I um, I I think that the the poems you can leave, you should leave. The poems that leave you, you should let go. Put uh, uh-huh. that. Yeah, that. Um, that uh, she won't accept a smaller commitment than that. Mm-hmm. And do you, how do you, this is a practical, mundane question before I have you read another one of your beautiful poems, but how do you um, divide your time between teaching and leading workshops and writing your own poetry and translating others? Well, uh, I'm pretty busy. Even even when I don't have enough work, which happens sometimes, I'm pretty busy because of how slowly I read, how much time I take with um, the literature I'm teaching and the the student writings I'm reading. Um, so it's the teaching is a major time commitment. Uh, even when there isn't enough of it, it's a, it's a major time commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose, I mean, that's another that's another thing that might make the muse jealous. Um, 
But I love it in itself, and I, I uh, have to do it as well as want to do it. So um, it's not a trade-off I think about too much. Uh, I do feel that poet that like any writing, poetry requires a daily commitment, a regular availability. But I don't think it requires oodles of time the way fiction writing or playwriting does. I think that um, you can you can come in and out of it more. And uh, I think you can get pretty good results without um, having all your time to devote to it. Mm-hmm. And so do you do you sit at the computer or with... Actually, you don't sit because I read that you like right. to stand when you're writing poems. Yeah, I'm mostly on my feet, mostly walking when I'm composing and revising. Yeah. And do you do you dictate into a recording device? No, I, I tried that, but um, back then at least it made me self-conscious. Maybe I could do it now, but I haven't really lost language because of being ambulatory. So I hasn't haven't hasn't really worried me. Um, I, I guess I tried the reporter because I was trying to actually compose more spontaneously, but it made me. More it made me self conscious. It it wasn't having the intended effect. So when you're walking and composing in your head, do you are you writing anything down or do you wait? Yeah, I, and I, I stop and, and when I'm afraid of losing the run of language I stop and write it down. Alright. Yeah. Okay. Um, could you share a second of your poem please? A- another poem? Yes, please. Okay. Um, This one is called Daughter of Jerusalem. It's the middle section of a longer poem called Jerusalem in Ruins. In a sense, it's the title section. Um, A lot of my writing comes from trying to describe music or trying to respond to music. Uh, This piece responds to uh, Francois Couperin's uh, Trois Laissons de Tenebre, which um, are uh, it's a traditional Christian kind of music, it, uh, but it's based on the lamentations of Jeremiah um, over the destruction of Jerusalem. The text is always from the lamentations of Jeremiah, um, and so in this poem, I imagine one a survivor of the first destruction of the first temple the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians i imagine her outside the city coping and try to use the music to ride closer um to her psyche so this is daughter of jerusalem <clears throat> here we have grief in perfect tune as if Being in tune weren't one of the things we would grieve for. But when the soprano takes one wing and the composer takes the other, I start to hear the daughter herself. Laugh if you must. I even see her. She sits on a rock that no man set there. And the stone says more than she does. She still can't look at the ruins or at any sky that still does. 
she opens her mouth and air falls out. Any least sound she might make must come from and return to that sky that looks down on no city. And if she so much as thinks, the sky rubs itself across her lips and she can't make it stop. For without sky, there's no wing, no song, no ruin, no city, and no face made so beautiful just when there is no one to see it. Again, exquisite. This, um, the images and the lines, Robert, are just, you know, it's just quite beautiful. Um, thank you. It's, and did you say this be- is part of a series of It's poems? part of a, a three-part poem called Jerusalem in Ruins. And are you putting some of your poems together in a book now? I have a book finished that I didn't succeed in publishing when I first finished it. I'm gonna. I'm making another effort this year, and uh, I don't think I don't think I have enough for a a second book yet. But it's getting there. Getting there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, a a nuts and bolts um, Mm -hmm. process question on on a poem like this. Are you, do you listen to the music while you're writing? Or? Yes. Uh, uh, whether I, I listen to the music. I've done this with many pieces of music. I, I listen to it over and over, and I try to describe what I'm hearing. I try to describe what I'm imagining, and I try to word my own responses. And I just try to keep up with the music doing that. And then later I select from those notes and um, look, you know, try to get something going, things going together, things going in some direction. And um, and it, it, I have several, I have a number of poems I've kept that have been written that way. It's It's been a good process for me. Mm-hmm. And I know, again, in the introduction to the um, book of Kushner Translations, you talk about... Um, the musicality of those poems, and I think some of the one of the reviews about the book um, talked about how beautifully the translations draw near to music. Um, did yeah. you study music at all, or no? I I I, I was as serious about um, writing songs and performing songs um, for oh I don't know from mid-teen years till about thirty. And uh, but poetry just sort of gradually took over. I, I think that I was. Um, I, I don't think I have less feeling for music, less love of music, but I think um, it had less feeling, less love for me. <laughs> so I've I've become an. I I still play a little uh, when and make music with friends, but um, but I've I say basically I've become an avid listener. What instrument do you play? Uh, the guitar. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, let's have the music of one more poem from you, if you would, please. Good, good. I've, uh, I've been writing a series of poems based on the paintings of Charles Birchfield, and um, 
this has the distinction of being the only one in which I actually used the title of the painting for the poem. All, and all the others, um, I've departed from the picture too much, I felt, to use the title. Uh, this one sticks very close, I think, to the picture most of the way through. Um, the painting is called Six O'Clock. It shows uh, a row of houses that have a kind of a projecting front dining room or kitchen in during a, um, a heavy snow. And uh, the, the one closest to the viewer is lit up, and you can see the people in the kitchen. And I guess it's six o'clock. <laughs> so here, here's the poem. The snow has not studied our blueprints seems to be sketching out new ones. And for now, that is all right. This is the hour of insides, not outsides. Grace will be said in a few moments. And while it may already be too late, one can see even from here that for each one at this table Home has been spotted, held, and inhaled, and each has felt herself there. Each has felt himself there. This is the hour of love so sure it can even be forgotten, provided you don't step out of the glow. As you and I have been charged to do, to look on from outside and warm ourselves as best we can on the leftover light. Like the poor man who seasoned his rice with the aromas from the rich man's kitchen. The hour is called six o'clock. It is at home. It is in exile, with or from each place and its occupant. If it, too, were a human, it would be a grown daughter, urging her mother hour to linger, leading her daughter hour before her. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, it's it's my pleasure, Robert. And um, I one of one of the translations that before we close here, I just mm-hmm. uh, one of the translations that struck me. Um, I think it was the second stanza of one of the Kushner poems was the more softly the word is pronounced, the more ardent, the more miraculous, mm-hmm. the less it dreams of becoming a song. That much nearer it draws to music, the more burning, the more useless beautiful and um i just I, I i have such a sense of you as as being both a wonderful poet and a and a wonderful transmitter of um you know a teacher of um embodying the poetic process and i thank you for that and i thank you for spending the time with us this evening too so well, and I look for forward the... to reading more of your work. We have one of your poems coming up in the fall issue of Deferret, and uh, I will look forward to reading more. So, Thank you.
Thank you very much. And just for our listeners, our next Spirit Talk interview will be Wednesday, October 28th. Uh, novelist Betsy Woodman will join us. And this tonight's interview will be archived on our website at www.deferritjournal.com for later listening. And uh, thank you all for tuning in and for listening. And thank you, Robert, for sharing your exquisite poetry with us and for all you do for the poetry community as well. Entirely my pleasure. Okay, Robert, hope to see you again soon. Good night. Good night.